Good morning. My name is Wayne Weiser. Today's reading is 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day of the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when my men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are a righteous than I. He said, You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will establish in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. As Vera said, this is one of those strange biblical stories that happens in a restroom. You don't get many of those. If you've been with us for any period of time, you know that really these last few chapters of 1 Samuel have been the story 
of Saul pursuing David over and over again. And God graciously protects David and helps him escape from the situation. And all of a sudden, rather than David being cornered in a city or cornered in some mountain pass, in this particular scene, David happens to be hiding in the back of a cave with all his men, and in that exact cave is where Saul comes to relieve himself. And David spots him. The situation was perfect, as verses 1 to 3 say. The situation was perfect for David to end this pursuit, to strike the man down who'd been seeking his life. Now remember, it wasn't just David taking it personal, which I'm sure he did. Remember that this Saul had just slaughtered 85 priests and an entire village, including the women and the children. He was a horrific man. Even the king's soldiers didn't want to act out. If you remember the attack of the village of, of, of Nob with the, with the priests and that slaughter, the king's soldiers didn't even want to do that. Whatever they were doing probably to pursue David, they were certainly feeling pressure to because Saul was the king. David could have gone out and made a plea. Like you, I know you didn't even want to kill that village. I was just ending this horrible man. Think of the attacks on the life of Adolf Hitler. Saul goes to the restroom in a cave, and all of a sudden David sees and is able to sneak up from behind and do whatever he wishes. And what he does teaches us a lot. In fact, God's Word is so gracious to us because God, through His Word, teaches us, sometimes rebukes us, or corrects us and trains us to live righteously. And this text does this in four brief ways. I'm going to pray, and then I'll show you those four ways this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we can see and our hearts, so that we can love or learn. Our ears help us to hear. Father, Unclench our fists so that we can receive or, or do. Father, work in us on this beautiful snowy day. May your word minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first thing I think that this text teaches us, and it's in verse 4 and then verse 6 and 7. I want to look at verse 5 separately. And here would be the prescription, like what I think the, the text or the Lord would say to us through this text do not claim insight into the ways of God, and do not contradict His revealed will for you. And I say that because notice what happens in verse 4. David's men urge him to strike Saul down. But they don't do that just because of their own desires. They actually try to link it to what God would desire and what God has said. They argue that this moment in the restroom, this cave restroom, was actually a fulfilled prophecy from the Lord had, had said. Look at verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Those are strong words. Now to be fair, God does speak to David in those ways, 
But he never says it that way. Meaning that that statement that the men give to David is found nowhere in 1 Samuel. And they even stretched it. God will deliver David, but he never says anywhere what the end of verse 4 says. To deal with as you wish. Notice how something was added there. Something was tweaked. The men were stretching God's promised care of David. It might have been for good intentions. It might have been because they really loved David. They saw the way he cared for them and for others. They saw the evil in King Saul and wanted him dealt with. They wanted justice. Fair enough. But what they just did is claim something from God. In fact, they made two mistakes. They think that they can determine God's specific intentions or purposes in an event. They think they know what God is doing. Be careful, Christians. God is at work around us at all times. There isn't one thing that happens outside of his will or beyond his purposes. God is, by definition, purposeful and intentional. That does not mean we can put a finger on it like a pulse and determine what that is. We are not God. We cannot penetrate his mystery. And you'll notice that that's the default, especially when things go bad. When things go bad, we want to know why. We want to see some deeper insight. And is there a why? Absolutely there is. God is always doing something. He's always working in certain ways, even if sometimes things are manifesting themselves years down the road. God is purposeful. Here's the thing. We just can't claim specific insight into what that always is. And we need to be careful with that. We need to let there be mystery. We need to let God be God. Maybe that's even part of the way that our own tradition manages this. I mean, I've shared with you before, like you'll, you'll notice that some Christian traditions emphasize God's transcendence, his otherness, he's beyond, and some Christian traditions emphasize God's imminence, his presence and relatability. And you can even see that by the way we design churches. If you walked into Westminster Cathedral every Sunday morning, you would feel like God is huge. This building is massive. Your eyes would immediately be drawn up. But if you were meeting in a caribou coffee house, it, it, God's my friend. Pass me a latte and give me some Jesus. And notice, if it, which view of God do you have in the workings of your life? There should be a little bit of both. But the reality is, is God's long-term, detailed, sovereign purposes and the tens of these at times may need a Westminster Cathedral moment where you realize God is God, and I'm not God. The second thing these men do is that they think they can disregard. It's not just that they're reading into what he might be intending by what's happening around them, but they think they can disregard what God has already made known. Notice what David says in verses 6 and 7, back to his men. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, notice the narrator jumps in in verse 7 and explains what verse 6 was trying to say. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men. 
He didn't just correct them, sharply rebuked. Like they were way off. And he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David didn't feel he had the right to touch the office God had established, even if the office holder was himself evil. God would have to be the one to deal with Saul. Christians, our focus is not, cannot be on God's secret will. We don't know that the, the, the church has long used categories of God's revealed will and God's secret will. His revealed will is what Scripture already communicates about your life and your work and your family and marriage and money and all of those things. That's God has revealed what He wants you to do. His secret will is beyond, it's outside, it's maybe more detailed or not covered in Scripture. Like, should I take this job? Should I, should I go to this place? Should we buy this house? Should we educate our kids this way? Like, that's not going to be in a Bible verse. That's God's secret will. That's beyond us. But we always want to make sure that we don't assume God's secret will goes against his revealed will. Like if God said, God wanted me to marry this person. Well, if God's revealed will had talked about marriage in such a way that that's actually a contradiction, then you know that's not God's will. Or whatever the example might be. We need to let God be God over our lives. There's a mystery and there's a direction, and we need to make sure we're careful with that. Now look at the second thing this text shows, and this is in verse 5. I wanted to skip it and focus on it separately. And I say this as a description. Sensitivity to sin is a reflection of the gospel's grace and the Spirit's power. Because verse 5 is a remarkable insight. And it's right in between verses 4 and 6 and 7 when David's dealing with his men. Even though David restrained himself from the religious pressure of his men, right? It wasn't just the social pressure. Hey, just kill him, man. It was religious pressure. The Lord is telling you to kill him. He, re he, refrained, he restrained himself. And even though he only took a small piece from Saul's cloak, notice what the text says in verse 5. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Even when he might have been holding back visions of justice against his enemy, and a man who had just murdered 85 priests in an entire village, he checked his own heart. I noticed that. He checked his own heart. He didn't even just pat himself on the back as, I didn't listen to that peer pressure or even agree with the theological reasoning of my men. Like he checked his own heart. In this moment, David, and the text, is teaching us the importance of our conscience. Every person has one. Everyone has a conscience. And a conscience is sensitivity to natural law, the way God made the world, because we are God's image bearers. So we have been made in God's image and have a relation to the Creator that is unique from all the other creatures and all the other created things. This is why even in the most secular societies that there will be laws that will reflect this. 
about killing or stealing or things that very much root themselves in biblical law, but even more deeply reflect natural law because all creatures are created by God. Romans 2 talks about this. Here's Paul talking about all the pagan nations. When he uses the word Gentiles, that's what he means, the the secular pagan nations. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, the biblical law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Paul explains, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times defending them. Like even Paul is talking about that thing, a conscience. This isn't legalism. This is taking God's laws seriously. And it it causes me to pause as we look at verse 5 and ask, are we that sensitive to God's laws? Have we let the grace of the gospel so penetrate us that we are open to heart checks? Because we know that Penitence, repentance, a posture of the need for forgiveness is part of what it means to be the gospel-believing Christian. The gospel's good news because there's bad things in our world and our lives. And that the Spirit who's given to the believer is at work in us, in the man or the woman being formed in the image of Christ. Maybe in our tradition, maybe especially we have to navigate some of the tricks of this, because probably some of us have been exposed to a more legalistic tradition, and so it is tempting for us to flee then to a tradition of more liberty or license. That's not wrong. I I have freedom here, and there is truth in that, but we don't want to get to the place where our heart heart is hardened unlike David, where at times we don't take serious a sensitivity to our own sin. I mean, let verse 5, or better yet, let the Spirit, with verse 5, have you asked those kind of questions of yourself? Have you spoken the way David did in verse 5 about things in your life? Again, not something that somebody caught you doing, but just, Lord, was my tone too strong? Do I think of myself more than I think of someone else? Am I loving money too much? Am I relying on security? I mean, the things that I'm not going to see, or you're not, your neighbors aren't going to see, coworkers, maybe even a spouse won't see, or your adult kids, maybe they won't even pick up on it. But you ask the question, Lord, reveal in me places where I'm bitter. Reveal in places where I'm greedy. Reveal in, in me places where lusting after something, or I'm not content. Like, I'm not going to raise my hand and admit it, but is it there lurking? And do we have that conscience, that sensitivity of the heart that David displayed in verse 5? If you do, that's because of the gospel's work. If you do, it's because of the Spirit's ministry to you, and you are blessed. A third thing in a longer section, verses 8 to 15, here's a, it's a tough one, 
This scene where David explains why he didn't act, I think the text would teach us this. Christians must learn when to leave matters to God. Even if you do not think David had the right to take Saul's life, you probably might not have thought that taking a corner of his robe was a big deal. Like, you would have been like, well, it's just a corner of his robe, right? He's the king. You might also be asking, how did he do that while he was relieving himself? Which is fair. Most likely, he would have almost completely, this is the outer robe, a cloak, he would have probably just taken that off, removed it from where he was, so that David could come up 15, 20 feet, still away from Saul, and cut off a little bit of the corner. It's not like it was on him as he was relieving himself. This has turned into PG-13 real quick. But I'm assuming somebody wondered that. But even still, you're probably not thinking, he just cut off part of his robe. Yet, notice, he felt that. He felt like he shouldn't have done that. Look at verses 8 to 15. Let's read those and make a couple comments. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. What a bold move, by the way. There's 3,000 soldiers out there. That could have been it. Like before he ever says anything, he just did something that was brave. He cries out, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Would you do that to your enemy? Hey, don't miss that. Or would you have said, my king, my jerk, and wanted to grab him by the collar and put up a fist to his face or whatever you'd want to do, shove him. Would you kneel down in a position of humble obedience? Verse 9, he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David has been unarming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Now notice, he's not saying because you're such a good guy. You're saying because this is what the Lord has revealed about this office. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Verses 12 and 15 are significant in themes of this whole passage. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. Those are scary words. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? Am I that to you? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't do the old imprecatory prayer, a prayer of judgment against him. He actually makes it about himself. We can learn how to talk to each other by that way. Rather, you know, the simple counseling 101, don't say, you always do this to your spouse or your friends. Say, when you do this, I feel. Put it on you. And notice, David does that. He doesn't say, may the Lord crush you and I can't wait to watch. He says, 
May the Lord vindicate me by delivering me from you. He made it about him. He doesn't claim a moral right that transcends his position of submission. He calls Saul, my Lord, my King, and my Father in just those few verses. He will not act in ways that go against the Lord's command. Notice how he sticks with what is revealed in God's Word, which is hard to do. And David presents his case and Saul's case before the Lord. That's where verses 12 and 15 come in. May the Lord consider my cause. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Jesus did. The Apostle Peter describes this in his first letter and says this in describing how Jesus was treated in the Gospels, which you all may know that he was treated very poorly. The Apostle Peter says this regarding Jesus' response. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. How many of us can do that? When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, get this, this is 2 Peter, or sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Instead, here's what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is, he let God be the one who would deal with it. That's exactly what David does. So we're seeing a trajectory. Old Testament David... New Testament Jesus, 2023, you and me. We are commanded to leave matters to God. Even when you're wrong. Even when it's unfair. Even when you have the power or access to do something. Maybe not in a bathroom, but in a boardroom or a schoolroom, or a courtroom. In what situations right now, brothers and sisters, do you need to leave matters to God? Maybe you're not willing to kill, but are you willing to lie? Half-truths or untruths? Are you willing to cheat? Are you willing to manipulate? Or just fight? Nasty? For your perceived rights and privileges? And maybe legally be right to do so. Maybe you've been treated so unfairly that you just live with bitterness. And I can imagine in our broken world with broken spouses and broken parents and broken bosses and broken systems that I can guess you live with a bit of bitterness. Some of us in this room have some bitterness against someone or something. And nothing would please you more than to think about avenging that. There's there's now maybe arguably more of a classic movie uh, with a literally just called Gladiator. And the whole plot of that movie is revenge. And the goal of his life is to kill someone that took something from him. Now imagine if instead of that had been played by Russell Crowe, that that had been played by Jesus Christ. At the death of his wife and son, what would he have said? May the Lord be judged between you and me. Right? But everything in us wants revenge. Right? Watch that movie. You, you literally, at the end of Gladiator, are rooting for him to get revenge. It is almost emotionally impossible not to be rooting for Russell Crowe. And all you've done for two hours has been taught, you've got to fight for your rights. You've got to get even. 
And then you come to David, and he says, may the Lord decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. And may he vindicate and deliver. Last thing, and it's short-lived, but I just, I just want to point out the response of King Saul. To be fair, I wish I could say the rest of the story looks something like this. The response of Saul is powerful and instructive for us, even if it is short-lived. By the time he goes home, his own rage and jealousy overtakes him again. Like a cancer, the evil resides in him. But in a moment of brokenness and vulnerability, Saul speaks what is true about himself and David, and we can learn much from it. Look at verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? Notice the loving language. And he wept aloud. Maybe he couldn't speak for a moment. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not? Does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. All of that is true. Like in a moment of when he tasted grace, notice what he did. He responded with a moment of repentance. Let me ask you this. While your situation and mine is different than Saul's, and arguably as a believer you don't have this cancer of self-righteousness and just self-justice in your life, when is the last time you confessed your sinful behavior to another believer, to another person? Like when's the last time you spoke that way? It might not have to be that radical, like I was trying to kill you for all these years, and I finally in schnooks, you let me go in aisle six, and then you come out to me when I'm loading the groceries in my car. It might not be that, but seriously, maybe not that extreme, but when's the last time you spoke and said, I was totally wrong? Grace should lead the Christian to confession. Before the Lord and before one another. In fact, when Paul's teaching about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, he actually says, if you're coming, gathering here, and one brother's over there and another brother's over there, and you're about to take communion, and you kind of look over and there's that brother that you need to pursue and ask for forgiveness, put, put the plate down, walk over across the room, and apologize to your brother before you take the table. Because participation at the table is about the oneness. And if there is a division between you, that needs to be repaired. Our passage ends with a surprising twist. Outside this ancient restroom cave, Saul also asks for David's mercy. And here's the difference that you're going to see. Right? Well, let me read it, and then I'll tell you this. Now swear to me by the Lord. Notice how David was willing to let it be in the Lord's hands. Saul actually, even in forgiveness, is trying to gain a little bit from it. Swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Now David could have said, hey, I'm not going to kill you myself, but I'm not going to mind if you're killed. But he says, so David gave his oath to Saul. 
Now, David would actually hold up on that. Unlike Saul, who goes home and begins again his pursuit of David, David, even to the end of his life, is tending and caring for, inviting Saul's descendants to live in his own home. Would not David have a right to hold a grudge or to remove honor and favor from Saul's descendants? The answer is no. How good are you at forgiving someone, by the way? Now here's where it hurts. You might not choke them in schnooks, but you don't want to see them in schnooks. Are you a grudge holder? Good answer. (laughs) Grace should lead the Christian to forgive willingly. If you have time this week, I won't read the whole story, but Matthew 18 tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. This guy owned literally millions of dollars. And his wife and children were about to be enslaved to pay off the debt. He begs this great king, what can I do? And the king says, I'll forgive your debt. And then he literally walks out in the street and somebody owes him 50 or 20 bucks. And he does everything he can to enact justice to get his money. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? If you remember, this whole parable was the answer to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Jesus ends by saying, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. He's basically saying, you've been forgiven everything you've ever done. And you're going to tell me you're going to walk out of the throne room of grace and look at somebody who sinned you in one or two or three areas, maybe even repeatedly, as if you you haven't done the same thing to your Heavenly Father. And you're going to feel like you have a position to stand over them in judgment. You have no idea who you are. And you've really never tasted grace. Brothers and, spirit, brothers and sisters, let's allow the Spirit of God to apply the grace of God to us in every corner of our life. That we would have a sensitivity to sin. We would not read into every event and try to determine God's perfect ways and wills. We would learn to leave matters to God and we would lead a life of confession and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, you are such a good God to your children, and you have forgiven us so many times and cared for us in so many ways, and yet we can live with disregard of such, even in just our own attitude toward you, determining what you're trying to do and feeling freedoms to disregard what you've already told us you're doing. Or using grace as fire insurance and not applying it to our moment-by-moment way of living. Or having tasted the forgiveness of Christ and then holding a grudge against a brother or a sister. Father, we need your grace. 
and the work of your spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would minister to us through your word in ways that only your spirit can do as this text is applied to our lives. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you for this reminder on this Sunday morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.